Well, Clay, I appreciate you being here today. It's good to talk to you. And uh, like I said, I just uh, finished reading your book here about a week ago, and uh, it was it was a it was a riveting tale, and certainly something that I enjoyed. I kind of like I told you, kind of grew up reading uh, true crime stuff, especially southern smaller town, and this this was a perfect fit, and I devoured it in a weekend, much to my wife's chagrin and her to do list. But uh, yeah, I'm grateful to have you here and talk a little bit about it. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come and talk about it, though. Uh, it was a situation where, uh, in writing the book, I wrote it so long ago, and I had no it, it, no hope in the world of ever getting it published, and it, things just kind of fell together for it. But uh, the story is as much about my family and my roots as it is about the crime itself, and uh, I really enjoyed writing it. And, again, it was more to me about uh, telling my story as it, as it was about the crime. But it, it was the longest, most brutal, long-standing spousal abuse case that I've ever heard of. Yeah, you know, I've, I've dealt with several in in my policing experience and investigation experience. I've dealt with a, a lot of cases of domestic violence, but never one that just lasted for years. Yeah, that was one thing that kind of took away from it. Was I mean, fifteen years is a long. Long time to I mean, deal with uh, that on a daily basis. It, it, it absolutely is. It's just it's hard to imagine the brutality that this woman lived under. Yeah. For that length of time, but uh, well, let's start off with your story. Can you sure. tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of where you grew up? Well, so I, here, I, a local boy. I was born and raised in Hogansville, uh, and my dad was chief of police there for years and years. And at uh, as quick as I graduated high school, I. Uh, went to work for the state patrol as a radio operator when I was 18. And as quick as I turned 21, I was promoted to trooper. I, I think I was in the 49th troop school in 76. And uh, my dad died young. He had a heart attack at 46 and passed away. And they offered me his job as a chief of police in Hoganville. <laughs> and like a fool, I took it. And uh, I stayed there for 12 years. Uh, and my dad was there for 20-something years before me, and uh, that's where my policing came from. And after I left the city of Hoganville, I uh, went into the private sector. I started a tire business, and I sold it to Bridgestone Firestone, and uh, I was there was a vacancy at the DA's office for an investigator, and I called the DA at the time. It was Pete Scandalakis, mm-hmm. and uh asked him about it and he said glad love to have you and the rest is history I, yeah. that's where i was <laughs> able to start looking at these old cases and uh had a lot of luck with them yeah in uh, in less than just under four years we solved uh four cases the oldest was 33 years old the youngest was about 14 years old and everybody involved now is either dead or in prison yeah and uh it was a lot of a lot of satisfaction. It was surely the high point of my professional career was being able to help some of these families. You know, everybody talks about closure. Yeah. When you have a child or a mother or a father that just ceases to exist in your life or meets a demise, you know, that's horrible, I don't think there is a such thing as closure. Maybe some numbness. Mm-hmm. But... Maybe the best thing I had to offer was some finality. Yeah. You know. Yeah. There's an answer there. Yeah. And uh, we were lucky enough. We were lucky enough to get to answer in several cases. As a matter of fact, while I was working for Pete, uh, after a couple of cases and that we'd done, I think it was the last case I was working on, I was finding getting some information from the NCIS and. I got to be friends with a couple of the guys with uh, Naval Criminal Investigative Services, and they invited me to come to Charleston to a uh, seminar up there that they were given, and uh, they asked me to bring my case files with me. And uh, the NCIS has the largest uh, cold case squad in the world, mm. uh, simply because of the military bases and the transient people that are in and off of them, and they did Marine bases in the United States Navy. And, whatnot but uh while i was up there they looked at my case files i actually used one of my cases that uh they used to 
in the seminar mm-hmm. to teach from. And uh, But they came up with a thing called an element of solvability on cold cases. And they would take the number of wit, the age of the case, the witnesses that were gone, if there was any uh, physical evidence left, just all the things that tend to erode away, yeah. you know, and they come up with this, and they gave it, and they gave each these pieces numeric values, and they come up with an element of solvability, and they said that during the time that I operated, that which was a fairly short time that I was the most prolific cold case investigator in the country in single-event homicides. I'd exclude spree killings mm-hmm. and, and serial killing. Yeah. But I, I thought that was pretty cool, you know? Yeah. That well, was pretty cool. Well, what kind of goes behind that? I mean, we had talked briefly about it beforehand. I mean, is it knowing the history of an area, having the context? I mean, what is— Oh, it, it, it is. I mean, that's the thing about it. Uh, being raised, I was basically raised on the seat of a police car. Yeah. And my dad, he as an old— police chief from the 70s and the 80s and the, well starting I guess back in the early 60s uh, he was kind of an innovator he was in the first class of the Georgia Police Academy in 1966 he went to the Southern Police Institute in Louisville uh, he was a FBI fingerprint expert you know for a small town police chief that never mm-hmm. you know, was kind of unheard of but uh, I ran around behind him followed him you know up until, the, up until his death and I was on the state patrol at the time, uh, but he was—he was just a great guy, and I learned about the ability to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, all these cases. The one thing that I was proud of—not that it's anything special—but the cases that I did, they all res- were results of old-fashioned talk to folks, information, police work. None of them were had any laboratory mm-hmm. uh, miracles in finding them through DNA and other things, which is great, yeah, you're sure. wrong. But uh, my success came from I knew something about the cases, and I knew the officers had investigated. And some of them, as a matter of fact, two or three of the cases, a couple of the cases, were where investigators called me and said, look, we never got where we needed to be on this case, but there's something there. Yeah, And uh, because of that and uh, knowing the people in the situations, I've was able to have a good deal of success. One of the, my favorite quotes from your father was about the advent of air conditioning and cars, and police cars specifically. And because I think Mike Yeager, long time ago, kind of mentioned that when we talked about community policing, and he said, "Yeah, absolutely, air conditioning and police cars really just kind of was a, a major setback in terms of a an investigator learning his community." Well, and, and that's the thing about it, you know, we've gotten to where, you know, the police are isolated now they're in a in, in a situation where and, but in what that develops is instead of being a situation where the police guy or the officer is a part of your community and he's there for you mm-hmm. uh, a lot of communities he's not i wouldn't say the enemy but he's not an outsider. he's an outsider yeah for sure yeah. my dad i never will forget we were riding along at, in at night my dad had permission from uh, Colonel Hardison to ride with me when I was on the state patrol. We were riding along one night, and, you know, he was always, he always had something to say, and, and uh, he was saying, I'm just going to tell you, son. He said, downfall of policing was the day they put air conditioning in a patrol car, because we're riding around in a state patrol car, and it's cool, and I'm mm-hmm. feeling really good. <laughs> I looked at him, and I said, what in God's name do you mean, Dad? He said, think about it. He said, the day that that happened, it became more comfortable for you to isolate yourself from the public that you need to be meeting and, and, and having a rapport with every day. Mm-hmm. And as crazy as it sounded, that was probably one of the most profound things that he ever said to me as far as his opinion yeah. as, to, as to the way things were. But uh, he was he was a different guy. and. Uh, God, I, I just I worship the ground he walked on. Yeah, well, it sound, I mean, he was a fixture in the community too. I he mean, was. I mean, I he think was. everyone could talk to him, bounce ideas or situations, it and it didn't matter to him who you were, what your status in life was. He'd make time for you. Mm-hmm. And in these old cases, that's everything, because right. you have to develop a rapport with people. Sometimes they don't know you well, but you have to develop a rapport where they'll tell you what they know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
indications that I had, uh, that's what we did. Yeah. Uh, and we were just very fortunate. Now, we did use, like, mitochondrial DNA to uh, establish, without a doubt, who the skeletal remains were and things like that. Mm-hmm. Because if you're trying going to try somebody for killing Joe, you need to make sure it was Joe. <laughs> but as far as the garnering the information and, and the prosecutorial information that uh, we used to convict these folks, none of that was anything other than just old-time detective work. Well, in in your book, you get into how the situation that, you know, arose happened in terms of the political machine that was involved that allowed a case like this just to kind of scoot on by without any sort of real investigation. Um, I think it basically kind of originated in Phoenix City and made its way into Troop. Can you? Well, and, and it wasn't just Troop County. Okay. It was, you know, back during the time in the 60s, and martial law, I think, was declared in Phoenix City in 54, 55. And a lot of the folks that were down there that basically ran the rackets and had influence, either them or their families, uh, they went in different directions. And some of them ended up in Troop County, Georgia. And uh, some of them ended up in other counties all along, you know, the Chattahoochee up mm-hmm. in, in, like, to Meriwether County and uh, in other places around Columbus, Phoenix City area, but uh, there and there's a book that Ms. Margaret Ann Barnes, who also wrote Murder in Cayuga County, uh, she wrote it to tell you some uh, it's very enlightening about the times and just how much influence that they had in Phoenix City when Albert Patterson, who was the Attorney General elect, was murdered by the sheriff's chief deputy in phoenix city before he could take office also indicted in that was a solicitor of uh of the county that phoenix city's in as uh as well as the attorney general of the state of alabama and he was not tried not because a lack of evidence because he plead uh pled insanity and never was tried (laughs) Uh, so, and, and, but in that time, it yeah. was just so much graft that that's just the way it was. And through the sheriff's offices, because the sheriff had the key to the jail. I yeah. Mean, you know. Yeah. And that was an all-powerful position. So, uh, the Phoenix City outfit, uh, the private clubs around that had one-armed bandits in them, oh, and yeah. uh, and in everybody had some of those. Uh, Troop County had them. Cowie, everybody. Did. Yeah. But it's just a way of life. You, you control the, the graft, you pretty well become a rich man. Yeah, you, know? you put a little in your pocket and everyone's happy. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Except my dad always told me, he said, there's two sets of folks in the world that are against the legalization of liquor. He says, that's the bootleggers and the preachers. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to some folks here mm-hmm. back. You know, we just recently got the liquor ordinance passed in Coweta County. Right. And uh, we're going back, you know, back to the early 80s or whatever. And we would see these campaigns, you know, vote yes on this. And someone told me that this was the one time that these two people, they would actually spend money together for those anti-liquor ads to run in the paper. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Both throw in, you know. You know, and uh, but the folks that control the liquor, they also controlled gambling. 100%. They they play in the bugs and the numbers and all those other things. And it was just a... There was a tremendous amount of graft. Yeah. And if you'll look around, there were sheriffs, uh, Sheriff Marion County, I forget what his name was. He was indicted and he committed suicide. Uh, sheriff in Henry County went to federal prison. It was uh, yeah. the sheriff in Troop County was an unindicted co-conspirator in a, in a liquor scheme uh, in federal court. But, you know, it, it, like I say, it wasn't an isolated thing. Yeah. It was just the way business was done. Well, so how does that relationship work between the sheriff's office and the police department? My dad, he ran for a sheriff in 1980, and he, he had the thing won. It was a five-man race. He was he was the high vote getter behind the sheriff inside, and he would, and he literally was going landslide the sheriff in ten days when he had a heart attack at the age of 46 and died. Uh, my dad's campaign slogan was i will put an end to the boss hog politics yeah. in troop county georgia and any and i feel absolutely sure that he would have yeah but i will say this 
the guy that came back into the race was Gene Jones, who mm-hmm. actually would have been my uh, first sergeant when I went to work with the state patrol. Yeah, He came in. My daddy's people supported him. And Gene was a good, honest law law enforcement guy. And uh, that was the beginning of change. Yeah. And uh, it has gotten better ever since. Well, I guess going back to the case itself, I mean, uh, how, can you just give us a background on uh, Marshall and Gwendolyn Moore? I know they came from very different backgrounds. Marshall, Marshall Moore was uh, from the foothills of the Appalachian uh, up in Raven County, Georgia. Uh, family was they were poor people, uh, and it came from a background where, you know, pretty much the code of the hills. Uh, in the 30s, and I was told this by a member of the family, that Marshall's grandfather killed his grandmother in nineteen in the, in the 30s and burned a body on a pyre on Boggs Mountain in Raven County. Uh, he was never prosecuted for it. Gwendolyn Moore, on the other hand, was raised in West Atlanta. Her daddy worked for the railroad uh, in a Christian-loving environment. And Marshall had left. He and his daddy had actually gotten in trouble. They committed a burglary uh, up there. Daddy, I think, went to prison. Marshall went to the juvenile home for a while. But then he came as a family in West Atlanta, took him in, and he met Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn was in the uh, was fifteen years old. Just got out of you know back then school. I don't think it would probably wasn't but eleven grades at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, when she was fifteen, they literally married at fifteen years old. Marshall was a couple of years older. And uh, uh, after they married, they uh, lived in and around Atlanta for a while. And they moved to, to Lagrange, and then uh, just out to, just outside of Hogan'sville, and uh, they had uh, four children together. It was uh, Alan, Ricky, Larry, and Dean. And uh, in the '60s, she also miscarried a child after a beating she mm-hmm. took, and. Uh, it was just, you know, the sheer brutality of what she lived through was just hard to envision. Yeah. Uh, young, the oldest boy, Alan, told me when I was talking to him, and Alan and I are about the same age, and as look, what, there's been so many things that happened in all these cases where, you know, I don't know about, I've never been one to talk about the supernatural or anything like that, but I do believe in divine intervention. And in these cases, there was some, you would get to an impasse where there was nothing there, and all of a sudden it was like God would open a door, and mm-hmm. there it was on, on more than one occasion. And uh, this, that was the way this was. Uh, I've been to work in the DA's office about 10 days, and I was sitting there, and the phone rang, and it was an investigator from the sheriff's office, Larry Arrington. There's a clay. I said, do you ever remember? Because of course, being from H- the Hoganville area, he just thought there'd be an off chance that it would. Do you remember a case where a lady was in a well in Hoganville? He said it would have been way back in about 1970. I said, not only do I remember it, I was standing there with my dad when she came out of that well. Yeah. And it was just outside the city of Hoganville, and they had asked him to come out and take some photographs. And. Uh, he said, well, there's a young lady in my office, and she was going through her grandmother's effects, and she found a death certificate for an aunt she never knew that she had, and it's that's clearly marked that it was a homicide and the cause of death was blows to the head and this and that. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm about as f- probably more familiar with it than anybody else around with it. He said, mm-hmm. there's not a record that I can find that this case ever existed. And as I, as I dug into the case, that, that didn't surprise me. You know? Yeah. But uh, he said, I'm going to fax this uh, thing. My daddy had a, you know, it, it, this case just enraged him. I, I, I remember some, there was a time or two that he would see Marshall Moore, and he'd say, you know, he needs, if right was any what it ought to be, he'd be on death row in Tattanawa County. Yeah. 
and uh, he faxed the a copy of the death certificate over to me. And I was looking at the death certificate, and I looked up at the top. My my daddy and I, we were really close. But I just got this job at the DA's office, and I was just getting my feet on the ground. And I looked at the top of the fax paper. It was October the 24th, my daddy's birthday. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I literally get chills when yeah. I think about that. It was like, yeah, son, do something with this. Yeah. And we were able to, and uh, it was yeah. the rest kind of history. Well, you were 15 years old at the time that they pulled her body out of the well. That's correct. She had endured 15 years of pretty much just daily beatings. I mean, I wouldn't even say it's a volatile relationship. I mean, it was just basically straight up. She was a prisoner, and she was abused every day, psychologically, physically, for 15 years. In the words of Alan Moore, when I first talked to him about the op- reopening this case, he said, Clay, my mother was nothing but a prisoner and a slave. And that was his words. Yeah. The night that uh, that she died, she had taken a tremendous beating. And he found her where she was hid in the crawl space under a neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. And he said her eyes were swollen shut and she was, you know, had blood and running out of her mouth. And a couple of days later, she'd been hit in the head with a bottle. And actually, I was able to find... Uh, a 33-year-old records from the hospital in the Troop County archives yeah. that uh, where they'd stitched her head up. And it, it, she literally had a, a fetus stomped out of her yeah. in the 60s. It was it was brutal. Yeah. And, and some of that makes the book kind of hard to read. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, in, you, you referenced this. I mean, obviously a community of that size is very small and everyone kind of knows what's going on. Oh, absolutely. You know, but uh, is... Were domestic issues like that kind of just considered to be personal matters at the time and not for getting well, the authorities to be dealt with? Back to the, to the thing, you know, the old maxim of a man's home is his castle. Right. And, uh, but not to this degree. But it's just like, now, one of the guys that I, that I interviewed actually saw the beating mm-hmm. from next door that she was taking that night. Uh, it, it was it was kind of a hard thing. I said, well, Ronnie, what happened? He said, man, he said, everybody around was scared of him. He said, we saw him in action. Right. You know, I never will forget what Ronnie told me. And it was one of the most profound things. When he described that beating, he described, and we're talking about, this was in 1970. Ronnie was 14 years old. And this was in, uh, 2002 when I was talking to him and he says he described the clothes she had on how she got up out of the floor went out the back door it her hair was matted had blood on it and it was you know it, when you're dealing with folks that are eyewitnesses of crime you always kind of suspect of what they say because sometimes it's just not reliable mm-hmm. but he described it just like it was he was looking at it and I said, Ronnie, and it, of course that made me question what he was telling me. I said, Ronnie, you saw this one time 33 years ago, and it's just like it's a movie in your mind. He looked at me and he said, Clay, he said, I didn't see it one time 33 years ago. He said, I've seen it nearly every day for 33 years because I should have done something. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, that's powerful. Yeah. She was also a very small woman. She was diminutive. And he was big. uh, Marshall was an average or better sized guy. Yeah. And she was, you know, five feet. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, it was, what she endured was awful. Well, so the evening of her murder, she, like you said, she had, she had endured something, uh, just a, a, righteous beating and was hiding underneath uh, the neighbors would often try to help her out when they could it wasn't the first time she hid under the house yeah uh on several occasions she and he knew that yeah and uh as a matter of fact alan told me that daddy told him to go under there and look she was under there and he came back he's found his mother he went back and told him she she wasn't there Mm -hmm. and the next morning she was in the well yeah and the well was an old Hand dug well that would have been curbed next to a house years ago would burn down, and they were basically using the well for a trash pit. Yeah. And that's where her body was. So 
who eventually found it? Was it the, like a search party, or how did they a- actually? It? The neighbors next door, one of their children, when the next morning, Alan and them got out, got to looking for the mother, couldn't find her. She wasn't under there. I mean, the folks next door knew she was under there that night, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the little girls went over there and looked down in the well, and because it wasn't but you know. 30, 40 yards from their door mm-hmm. and looked down in the well and she was in the well. They could see that all the way? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was a dry well. Yeah. And they'd been throwing stuff in it. Oh, okay. She wasn't but about 20, 25 feet down. Oh, okay. Okay. And I never will forget when I looked down in the well when we got there, mm-hmm. it was like she was in a fetal position, but like she was praying on her knee. Mm-hmm. And it was something to see. And they uh, brought a wrecker out and, uh, Deputy Sheriff went down on the cable, put a cable around her and pulled her up. I never will forget when she came up, you know how a cable spins when it has tension on it. Mm-hmm. She was spinning around over that hole, and the three boys were over there standing. I didn't see Marshall. I don't remember him. But I, because of Allen especially, because he was just one year behind me, and I knew him from, you know, I knew him from school. Mm-hmm. We were in Hogansville, Georgia. You know, you knew yeah. everybody. Yeah, sure. And I looked over there, and they just looked like stair steps. And uh, I, just, I, I just couldn't even imagine yeah. what them witnesses looked like. Well, specifically Alan, like you had mentioned, where, I mean, I think he still harbored a lot of guilt for his mother's oh, death. Oh, yeah. I Alan, mean, it, it, you know, we, we became good friends. He's actually come to a book signing for me and this and that. And uh, he, uh, he, he said, you know, he said, I found my mama there. He said, I just took her by the hand and we, and, and we ran down the road to try to get some help. And he, you know. When I first talked to him, he met me. He had actually ran away from home to get away from some of this brutality himself. Mm-hmm. I say he ran away from home. He was run out of home. And he went to LaGrange, and he, he uh, ran in. He had an aunt down there that took him in. And uh, at that time, he was 14, just turning 15. <laughs> he told a lie about his age and uh, forged up some different numbers on his birth certificate and went to work in the Dixie Cotton Mill. Mm-hmm. And he worked there till he was 17, and he went in the Navy. And uh, in the Navy, he got a GED, and he uh, did well. He was a submariner, and he was an electronics technician, you know, through the mm-hmm. training he got in the Navy. And he came out, and he went to work for Cornell Corrections. And uh, they had a big prison down at Folkston, Georgia, a contract prison. And uh, he was the head of their... Uh, electronic maintenance surveillance yeah and that's where he was when i called him and said i ran across this alan what do you want to do i mean yeah. you know you don't want to inflict any more pain on folks you no, know, 33 years yeah. later yeah and he said i've wanted justice for my mom ever since yeah and uh the day that he, he met me down around cordial and we sat probably for two hours and just talked about it and his childhood and whatnot and with tears running out of his eyes you know he said clay he said if, he said, I have toted this. He said, I've, I've felt responsible for this for over 30 years. Yeah. And uh, I just couldn't imagine that, you know. I couldn't imagine. Well, that, like you said, I mean, after her murder, basically nothing happened. I mean, did local papers have anything about it? An obituary. An obituary. That was pretty much it. And, you know, wow. and I was able to go back and I found the old coroner's report. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the, if you look at the death certificate, Dr. Uh, Joseph Krafka was a pathologist at the West Georgia Medical Center. Back then it was City County Hospital. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, you know, death certificates usually are, you know, don't. He described injury. He described injury from a week before he wanted to be able to see something done about this. Yeah. And uh, it just never was. And matter of fact, when Allen was questioned, I found the old investigative reports that back in the day from where the GBI had questioned him. And you got to remember, back in that time, the GBI worked at what they call the pleasure of the sheriff. You had to be invited in, and in this particular case, because now the old man... Uh, Marshall Moore married quickly after his wife's death, and he married a girl that was one of the folks that ran all the graph, mm-hmm. one of their daughters. And uh, but anyway, it was 
a situation where this out of sight, out of mind. She wasn't from here. Nobody had any, you know, question about it, except the neighbors out there, and everybody just knew something was going to be done. Yeah, and just never was. And it was a, it was a dual tragedy. Yeah, the fact that it could be done, it could happen like it did, and absolutely be swept under the rug. Well, what did life look like for Marshall after that? I know he remarried. Did he raise a new family with Priscilla? Or they had a child, and uh, I think Marshall. You know, after he married Priscilla, he calmed down considerably because you got to remember who her daddy was. Correct. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, and, and even my book talking about my family, you know, time and people change. And I, and I don't know what his, I, I don't know what he thought or how things went later in his life. From all you could see, he wasn't the same person he was when this happened. But it doesn't relieve the fact what he did. Yeah, or the 15 years prior to that. Oh yeah, I mean, it was you know it, it doesn't it it there comes a time when you got to pay for your transgressions. So what does a 15 year old like yourself? What's the impact of seeing someone being taken out of the well? And did that influence you about in going into law enforcement? Or was that going to happen anyway? That was going to happen anyway. Okay. Like I said, I was yeah. raised on the seat of a police car, and that was going to happen. But it gave you a little training early on to say, you know, there's some injustices in this world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have been so very fortunate to be able to not, I don't know if you can right those wrongs, but at least to call them out. Have a say. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Gwendolyn couldn't speak for herself. That's right. And I never will forget when we were doing the uh, autopsy. Or on her skeletal remains, we mm-hmm. zoomed her body. Yeah, and uh, we had to. Doctor Kraft had since passed away, and we had to have somebody that could say this is the cause of death. Well, uh, Doctor Chris Perry was the director of the GBI Crime Lab. He helped me on several of my cases, and uh, he uh, he said Clay said. I have total, uh, from the, descript- the description of the injuries da, 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 and the progression of the death, he said, I think we can pretty well say that she probably died as a result of the beating, probably from a skull fracture and this and that. And he said, but the problem is Dr. Krafka is no longer with us to be able to state what he found mm-hmm. personally. He said, I can't testify to what he saw, hearsay. Yep. We got to exhume the body, so we had to call the family, Alan and his aunt, her sister, and we all the the, the niece uh, Leslie Power that brought all this to light. Had the meeting, and you know, Pete very eloquently said, "Look, we don't want to open any wounds with this." And he said, "We're probably looking at a long shot." Yeah, for sure. You know, and to their credit, and to their solidarity about wanting to find out the truth of what happened to Gwendolyn, hold somebody accountable for it. And everyone said, yep, we're in it. We want to, we want to exhume her body. Yeah. And, and we did. But we, when we got into uh, the crime lab with her skeletal remains, myself, Linda Caldwell was at the DA's office and she was going to prosecute the case. And as they removed the remains out of the coffin, and they'd washed them off because the inside of the coffin, you know, mm-hmm. stilt and mud for over the years had filtered into it. And uh, Dr. Sperry was rebuilding her body in an anatomically correct position on the, on the gurney next. He picked up the skull and he looked at it and he washed it, you know, and he said, God, her nose has been broke more time than I can count. He said, but I don't see anything in the skull that I would say that caused her death. It wasn't a fracture. And I'm, we're letter, literally at that point, it was probably one of the lowest points of my life. I mean, it was just like, God, here we have caused all, opened all these old wounds, and we're, we're at a dead end. And, I, and literally sitting by the wall with tears running out of my eyes and Linda's too, because, mm-hmm. you know, she was up to date on where we were and what all had happened in the case. And, Doc Sperry, 
he starts down the cervical spine, getting a piece out at a time. All of a sudden, he says, now this is provocative. And he looked up and said, this is murder. And it was a hyoid, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the little bony process across the front of the voice box. It was bilaterally bloke, just like you put both hands around her neck and strangled her to death. He said she died of manual strangulation. And some of Dr. Kraftka's findings, like petechial hemorrhage, mm -hmm. uh, that would have gone right along with the anaerobic metabolism caused by manual strangulation. Yeah. So we had a cause of death, and away we went. It's amazing to get an autopsy 33 years later that you would still be able to determine a, a you know, manner of violence. It, it, it's amazing. It, it was a roller coaster ride. It was from the absolute pits to 10 minutes later on top of the mountain saying, right. we have something definitive. Well, because, I mean, up to that point, I mean, it wasn't overnight. You guys had been doing extensive research up to that point in terms of trying to find records and all this other oh, yeah. stuff. I mean, I that, mean was a, you know, that was an incredible story. And, and I, I, I want to give a, a, a hand to the folks at the Troop County Archives. Yeah. Not only in this case, but in several cases that I did. They were so helpful. And they have things cataloged from newspaper reports back from way back when. Miss Kay Minshew uh, and, and her folks that were there, they actually, they get to, they'd get to some knowledge about the cases and they'd become involved and they just, you know, were relentless in finding the stuff that I needed, you know. Mm -hmm. Who'd ever thought you'd have found an emergency room report from 1970 from the West Georgia Medical Center that's no longer in existence? Well, that just blew my mind. I mean, talk about a needle in a haystack and a long shot. <laughs> Holy smokes. That wasn't the only thing. We actually found uh, in the Fovisai killing, and that that has a, a lot of Noonan roots with it, uh, The uh, what we were able to find from, from it was another victim of his that he actually, and we indicted him on on that. Uh, uh, it was for a rape and uh, a sodomy, and that he committed as well. Just a couple of three weeks after the Fovisai girl disappeared, mm -hmm. and uh, Ms. Minshew and them were able to find uh, some stuff that allowed me to be able to locate the woman. She works at a bank over in Montgomery, uh, yeah. Birmingham, Alabama, and it was just you know. So you're able to take all this back to Pete, and he doesn't even decide to indict, does he? He just goes for a warrant. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we <laughs> we had what we needed, and uh, uh, on this case, but I, again, I can't say enough nice things about Pete Scandalakis. He he allowed me to be able to do some things that made a difference in my life and made a difference in some other folks' lives, and I appreciate him for it. Yeah. So how did the family react to this? Oh, that was just over the moon. Just... Now, his current family wasn't, wasn't so happy about it. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, and I understand yeah, that. Sure. I understand that. Uh, <laughs> but, again, that doesn't excuse what happened. And uh, it was, you know, that old saying about justice uh, postponed is better than justice denied. That's right. And, and they, you know, but... In a way, it, it it was denied to. He was arrested. He was held accountable for it, but he befell to cancer before. He actually got the case put off several times, and sometimes it was in simply cases of it wasn't everything that it, uh, that they said that they were doing. Sure. And uh, Judge Keeble finally said, "We're going to try this case. I don't care if we're going to try it with him on a stretcher." Yep. And. Uh, Shortly after that, he checked in the hospital and passed away. He quit eating, didn't he? I think he, you mentioned he had kind that, of maybe saw the writing was on the wall after Keeble's. Uh, and and that's what the, some of the caregivers at the hospital had told me that, you know, it's time he, to check out. It's time to check out, huh? Yeah. But you know, again, uh, I guess better late than never. Well, there's accountability. And that, I think that's it. I mean, it might not have been justice, but it was accountability. That's, think, that's true. I mean, those people deserved the, Alan and uh, the other members of the family that knew from day one what had happened, yeah. that saw it, that lived it, you know, and even felt some responsibility mm -hmm. in it, even though I feel it was totally misplaced. Uh, it, it's just, uh, 
a situation that should never have occurred, but it did. Now, did they have another ceremony for Gwendolyn for when she was buried again? Actually, yes. Uh, I had gotten uh, a friend of mine, one of the preachers came, and he said some words, and we put her back. As a matter of fact, the lady at the crime lab, and, you know, doing a uh, autopsy, a skeletal autopsy or an uh, autopsy after somebody's been interred, that's not that rare a thing. It's not? Okay. That's it's a question not that rare a thing. Yeah. And uh, huh. the lady, uh, Lizette Strickland, the lady's name, she was Dr. Uh, Sperry's assistant, that the technician, and she said that it was... Uh, that the way that we handled retrieving her remains and getting her back to where she was, you know, she said that was probably the the nicest, most honorable way that she'd ever seen it done, and that meant a lot to me, it meant a lot to that family. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's just need to read the book well yeah and I, like you said i mean even 33 years later emotions are still oh yeah i mean nothing has subsided especially when it those well, are the well, you know sitting here talking to you now there are parts of this that, that literally you know make me become emotional yeah. you know well and you mentioned too someone advised not getting too close to a case but like you mentioned after a certain amount of time if you don't get emotionally invested it's going to stay cold oh absolutely i mean you know here's the deal if you're not willing, a case that's like this, this that's old as this, or even old as some of the cases that are, are cold now mm. in our circuit, in our area, uh, if you didn't have somebody that knew some history about it, that, you know, didn't have a stack of cases with 40 or 50 working cases that they're having to muddle through every day mm-hmm. with folks calling every day, uh, it, it's just a different, th- different situation. If you're not willing to be, able, number one, you got to be able to put the time in, and you got to be able to pick up that baggage that some of these families feel. Mm-hmm. Then, and that's why I always would go to the the close families and the friends and the people that had vested interest in the lives of these people that were lost, and pick up something, become to try to get to know the person that was a victim, and it makes you buy into that feeling of abandonment and 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 uh helplessness mm-hmm. that these families have felt especially some that they, you know they had a strong inkling about what happened anyway and they sit there and they watch and they look and nothing ever happens and, yeah uh you have to if you're not willing to pick up that baggage and carry it with you because it'll make you lose a lot of sleep at night yeah that's how i wrote the book <laughs> <laughs> uh which is a strange thing you know, i wrote this book while i was doing this case 20 years ago mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. uh, it just sat there and just by <laughs> again divine intervention I guess I just happened to be at a, at a, a again a dove shoot with a friend of mine that we've become good friends uh, Dr. John Williams who was, who was the professor of creative writing at LaGrange College and we just offhandedly I said I'd written a book and he said let me see it and the next thing I know, they would call. He, he called me and said he wanted to submit it for me, and I had no idea that it would ever do anything. And uh, within a couple of weeks, they were calling me from Arcadia and the History Press and saying we want to publish a book. Mm-hmm. So, and the rest is pretty well history. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something, especially considering that was your first foray into to writing. Uh, more like stumbling blind. <laughs> <laughs> And so, I mean, during your time, how how long were you a criminal investigator for the DA's office? About four years. And you got a lot done in four years. Oh, I was really proud of it. I guess so. Really proud of it. So what, what's your secret to uh, cracking cold cases? I mean, we had mentioned, you know, kind of knowing your community, but, I mean, is there what else gave you such such a good success rate with cases well, like that? Again, I knew the history, and, and it gave me a place to start. And there, there are cases right now. Uh, uh, a case that I will write about, I'm writing now about uh, a gentleman was killed in 87. They found his, matter of fact, we recovered his remains in 2003 and uh, successfully prosecuted the woman that killed him. She got, She's doing life in prison now. And uh, the next case that we had was a girl that was kidnapped here in Newnan. 
She's from, well, lived in Newnan. Her name is Vyang Fovasai. And uh, she was a Laotian immigrant, came here with her dad and mom, and uh, two sisters and a brother. And uh, they were brought over here after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And he was actually the custodian. And, and there's a tremendous backstory to this about how they got here. Actually, the United States government brought him here because he was giving intel to the American forces in Vietnam. And uh, the First Baptist Church of Newnan sponsored them. And uh, he was uh, did custodial work here. His kids started school, didn't know anything about English. And by the time, and super bright, hardworking, uh, this girl, by the time she was an honor graduate, had uh, scholar, uh, you know, scholarship offers to so a couple of different schools and got uh, her brother's a professor of art at Indiana University. I mean, they were just overachievers, you mm-hmm. know. But this girl was denied ever getting there. Shortly after she graduated high school, she just disappeared off the face of the earth. In 87, they found her body tied to a tree in 89 just outside of the city of West Point on Highway 103. And the case fell cold. And uh, hmm. GBI agent worked on the case while we were working on another case, told me, said, hey, uh, this is a case that I believe you can find some resolution to. And we were able to open it back up, and we not only were able to convict him for killing her, but uh, he was a convicted sexual predator, and we found another case that we indicted him for along the way, and it was uh, had a lot of success, and some things I'm very proud of. I guess so. Well, so are you going to take on another book at some point? I am. I'm currently writing one on the disappearance of Fred Wilkerson. Like I say, he uh, disappeared, just fell off the face of the earth in 1987. Yeah. Uh, family looked for him for years. Uh, had a, They had a strong suspicion of what may have happened because of, his, of what was going on in his life. And somehow or another, at the time, they just came to the uh, consensus, law enforcement did, that he just stepped away. You know, mm. uh, started a new life. But you know, to me, it was after I got to know him and the family and this and that. And back to that same thing, the way this case came about was we had a big storm. We'd just gotten through with the case on the, uh, or just had arrested Marshall Moore. Mm-hmm. And a uh, big storm came through LaGrange and blew a, Pete had just gotten a brand new pickup truck. And it blew a tree down right across the top of it. And he asked me where to take it. And I said, I'd take it to West Georgia Pain Body. And he said, we went up there. And the uh, guy that runs it, his name's Tim Wilkerson, it, it was his dad that disappeared. Which was, and it, once you get to know him, it was totally, to me, it was totally outrageous anybody would have bought that. But anyway, he uh, said, would y'all look at my dad's case? And Pete looked at me and said, what do you think, Clay? I said, sure, I'm in. And within 30 days, we found his body. That's amazing. And he, uh, but a storm <laughs> caused us to be in touch with him. Yeah. And he'd seen the results of the case of us as we just picked up. And again, I I can't explain it. And like I said, I have chills sitting here thinking about it. But, you know, it's divine intervention. That's all I can say. Yeah. I had a case in, in the Fovisai case. Uh, I got to checking with the ex-wives you know right. you want, if you want to dirt on somebody go get the ex-wives ex-girlfriends you can mm-hmm. find out what you did and I had a girl that uh, in the Troop County Courthouse that was doing some research running down ex-wives for me and one of them told me that this guy had committed a sexual assault in Chambers County Alabama uh, several 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 years before and he'd been convicted of it went to prison for it. Uh, and I couldn't find anything about it. Mm. It was like it didn't exist. And uh, after about, I guess, a couple of months of the Chambers County Courthouse, the Lee County Courthouse, the Sheriff's offices and everything else over there, again, we're talking about things that happened 20, 20, 20 years ago. You yeah. Know? And uh, I just about given up on it. Well, of course, the case was moving. Uh, 
but there was an ex one extra wife that I never had found. I had never had talked to. I think he had like four or five, and uh, all of them had the same story, and it was they were scary. Mm -hmm. But uh, my wife had called me. She worked at the at the clerk's office over. She was in the uh, criminal court in the Superior Court for Judge Keeble's mm -hmm. report, uh, not reporter, but clerk, and. Uh, the girl that she worked with, they called me one day and said, hey, we're going to go out to Locos and LaGrange and eat supper. And said, uh, we're, uh, uh, just meet us out there. Well, I met the four or five ladies out there, and there was one of the ladies, and she lived down in Lynette, Alabama, that came over and worked in LaGrange. Mm -hmm. And she brought her sister-in-law with her. And the lady that did civil work in the courthouse had looked up some information for me, and she said, Clay, I've got that information you wanted on Charles Travis Manley. And I said, okay. I didn't say anything. I said, I'll stop by and pick it up tomorrow. In a minute, I got up and I saw somebody in, in the place. You know, again, I know everybody. And I went over and spoke with them. And as I went back to the table, I met this sister-in-law. She looked at me and she had the, the, the strangest look on her face. She said, Mr. Bryant, she said, why were you talking about that man? I said, I think he may have committed a very serious crime that she looked me straight in the face and said, he assaulted me in 1980, whatever it was. It was the victim of the case that I couldn't find. What is the chance of that? Again, divine intervention. Well, how do you not believe in something like that? I mean, I mean you know, uh, one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> it just kept on coming. And uh, But anyway, she told me about it. We used it. Her situation, what they had done was, talking about the good old days, mm -hmm. this guy came in, pled guilty to, they let him plead down to a lesser than a rape, but that's what it was. To They let him plead it down to attempted rape. Hmm. But it still was a felony. Yeah, sure. Okay? So before, he, and the judge sentenced him, a week or so later they bring him back into court. He withdraws that plea in front of a judge, and they let him plead guilty to a misdemeanor of sexual battery. Oh, my gosh. And basically from the time he had spent in jail, he goes home. <laughs> to commit another rape and a yeah, murder and yeah. already had committed the had raped his two children at gunpoint mm -hmm. and you know good lord so, same out same outfit that that shoved that stuff up under the rug with Gwendolyn yeah same crap man so how does a machine like that eventually get dismantled I mean I know that your father ran and by the way was did you, was your father ever in fear for his safety during that campaign not really but it's crazy as it sounds actually after my daddy died he died of a heart attack yeah I mean I I sat there and spoke to him before I went to work at night and last thing he told me he said son don't drive that damn car so fast and uh he uh that was about 10 o'clock that morning he was gonna go to, La to LaGrange and pay for some advertising. Matter of fact, Gene Jones was endorsing him at a radio station mm -hmm. and uh he came back, sat down in his chair and died of a heart attack. And yeah. I was they called me, I was down in Harris County and met him at the hospital. Yeah. But uh no, but I had several folks that were so in fear of they even said, you know, you got to have an autopsy of your daddy. Yeah, you know, they, sure. Somebody might have done something. That you know, my dad had heart had had in the past had had heart trouble, and yeah, you know, I was there with him. He described how he felt that day, and I even told him, I said, "You might need to go to the doctor, Daddy." He said, "No." He said, "I got ten days." He said, "After I do that, and he said, I think I got this thing one, and I'll go get myself checked and take a little better care of myself." Well, it was a hot summer. Oh, it was. <laughs> 1980 was the hottest summer on record. I forget how many days over 100 it was. And he literally walked in nearly every house in Troop County. Mm -hmm. And Golly. It was. That's something. It was. It was. I was proud of him, you know. So with that election, ousting the, the sheriff. Sheriff Bailey was beat. Sheriff Bailey. Uh, Gene Jones came in, and it was kind of a new day. The, all the powers that be that, that were mm -hmm. kind of got shuffled to the side and. Uh, it never has been like that again. Yeah. 
But he got he, and you got to give some credit to folks like you that were able to start having information. Mm-hmm. People started realizing what was going on. Okay. When you when you can go to a person's business and pay it three or four hundred dollars for a DUI and it never comes to a court docket, that kind of tells you something. Sure. You know? Yeah. And uh, that's kind of the way it was. Yeah. Well, like you said. And again, that, it wasn't just Troop County. It was No, yeah, you're right. It was, just, it was just the way business was done in that day. And when you do have a new sheriff, like you said, the sheriff, the people that work under the sheriff usually work at his his mm-hmm. his pleasure pleasure of the share yeah right. cuz anytime we get you know uh, a new i remember when we had our election i guess several years ago how come we were a little kind of like you, you do no matter how good you are at your job and how secure you think you are there is always the chance that the sheriff just might not you know nah, i'm going to go well, in a different direction it, and it, when you do i guess you get to clean house it's politics yeah you know and and you're in a position that you know you're working for a sheriff that would all you'd have to do is say, I'm for this guy, and you're gone. Mm-hmm. And then if you politic for the guy that says, I'm paying your salary, the new sheriff's got his eyes looking at you all crazy, you know, when he gets It's a tough spot. <laughs> it's, it's a tough spot. But, uh, to you know, I, to most of the sheriffs uh, that I've seen after I've gotten grown, they've always gave folks a chance. They know yeah. what kind of spot those folks are in because most of them actually have already lived in that That's spot. That's right. That's you right. Know? Yeah. So it, it, it's it's good. I, I, I can't say enough good things about uh, – I'd I like to compliment you too. Uh, I, Mike Yeager, he was – the cases that I, that I did up here that, you know, he was always so supportive about the things that we were doing mm-hmm. and helped us in the cases and – the sheriff in Harris County, where the Fogelside girl's body was found, we tried that guy in in Harris County. Uh, uh, sheriff Mike Jolly, they've just been so helpful. And uh, the sheriff in Troop County now, Sheriff Woodruff, he's you know yeah just been super supportive and you know nothing but right-minded kind of folks. I think and it's a lot more transparency nowadays. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and accountability. Yeah, for you know, sure. that, yeah. back that thing, whether whether it be with the crooks or law enforcement, you know, just you know, like my daddy said, my daddy said this. He said, "Son, there's some bad in the best of men, and there is some good in the worst of men, and everybody you deal with, you just have to get to know that person." and deal with what you got and that has kind of stuck with me my entire life you know yeah. he always told me so i loved everybody on the front row of the first baptist church but then a lot of them know the things i needed to know <laughs> That's right. so where can people find your book uh actually it's on amazon okay. barnes and noble uh it's on the kindle platform mm-hmm. but in newnan uh the books the art store mm-hmm. the corner art store yep. has got copies of it and uh, in lagrange uh, pretty good books as has it and uh, hopefully I'm going to have a few more outlets that might have it and of course I've got some copies and yeah. any, anybody that wanted one I'd be glad to sign it for them and that kind of thing uh-huh. but uh, it, it was, it's was it been an absolute uh, pleasure to write the book and again it had been shelved for so long and then it, boom there it came again and so it, it's a story about me and where I came from as much as it is about the case. And uh, I'm just so happy that it, the people that most, everybody I've just given us a, it's got a four, a five-star rating on Amazon and uh, it's sell, selling through them very well. And uh, a publishing company said that it was in the top Arcadia said it was in the top, in the last quarter it was in the top 10 sellers of all the books that they had so mm-hmm. they want us to write a couple more so we're going to be plugging along and hopefully the, the one on the girl from Newnan the Fosai it'll be I'm currently writing one on the Fred Wilkinson disappearance and when I get through with it we'll do the Fosai girl and after that uh, the McKean kid in Harris County uh, so well, I can't wait got a, a, a wealth of doing it. it's just <laughs> You know, when I did this one, I was so invested in it, I'd come home and couldn't sleep. And now that I've retired, it's like going to work again. And yeah, I guess <laughs> it's so. a little different, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I said I've been so lucky to feel like I made a difference for a couple of folks and some families, and uh, 
You can't make everybody happy all the time. No. But you can do what's right. That's got to feel good. It is. Yeah. It does. It's been the highlight of my professional career, and I've been so blessed to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you again. It's always a pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm glad you liked the book. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, uh, again, anybody that will, would want me to sign a copy, I'd be glad to leave one either at the bookstore up here or whatever. And, uh, again, I, I hope they enjoy it. And I hope we'll have another one or two coming down the pipe. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Clay. Yes, sir.